Hi everyone, this is Nikki Patterson, host of the Talent Intelligence Podcast here at Solutions Driven. Today my guest is none other than Jen Allen. Uh, Jen Allen is the Chief Evangelist at Challenger, um, which is uh, something myself, my CEO Gavin, have been hugely passionate about for, for many years. So I'm super excited to have Jen as a guest on the show today. Jen, how are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to be here. So let's have some fun. Awesome. Awesome. So what are we going to do today? We've had a lot of awesome guests on this uh, this podcast the past couple of couple of years. Uh, today we're going to look at, you know, sales, of course, but we're also going to look at it from a sales recruiter point of view. We are in an era right now that, you know, there's some economic uncertainty. There is way more decision makers in, in the process than, than ever before. We're going to look at, you know, Jen herself, right? Jen is top talent. Jen has been with Challenger how many years now, Jen? Well, about 18 years, honestly, 18 years of the same organization. We've just had M&A that resulted in it looking like it's three different companies, but it's effectively the same company. All right. Awesome. So we want to look at, you know, that retention piece. What is it that keeps people at companies? How do they grow? And they grow by having good results, right? And to have good results, you need a good, I guess, framework. So yeah, really looking forward to to this today and, and have a little fun with it. Now let's even maybe reverse back a stage and maybe give us a quick overview of Challenger and then we'll jump into that. Yeah, sure. So um, for those that are not familiar, Challenger was a sales methodology that was born out of the 2008-2009 recession. So essentially what happened at that time is the organization that we worked for was called Corporate Executive Board, or some people know it as CEB, um, had all of these different functional memberships. So basically, if you were a CHRO, you had a membership. If you were a CIO, head of sales, and so on and so forth. And when we went out in 2008 and 2009 to sales leaders and said, hey, what's the biggest challenge you're working on right now? What do you want us to go out and study so that we can share back best practices? It was the first year that we ever saw such a common pattern in what people cared about. And it was one simple question. It was, economy is falling down around us. I actually have no idea what to tell my salespeople to do because the stuff that worked for me or that worked for our team even last year doesn't seem to be working anymore. So help us understand for these sellers who are outperforming in this kind of market, what the hell have they figured out that the rest of us haven't, right? And so it set us on a journey and every year since 2008, we've continued to study it, but there's essentially two big stories. So one was when you go out and you look and, and study customers, what they say drives their loyalty and what actually drives their loyalty are two very different things. And so the first thing we needed to understand was what does make a customer loyal in an environment like that? And what we found is, you know, all the things roll up into basically four categories, like how they perceive your company and brand, how they perceive the quality of what you offer, how fair your price is, and then the sales experience they have with you. And especially, remember, doing this in 0809, we expected full on that price would be way up top. Yeah. What we observed is when you look at what customers actually do, so you study their behavior, so talk about a company you bought from and two you didn't, what ended up happening is the results completely surprised us. It was actually 53% of what made a customer loyal had to do with the sales experience that they deliver. Yeah. So it is not to knock any of the other three things. Like you still have to have a good product. You still have to have a good brand. You still have to have a fair yeah. price. But essentially what it told us is like, that's how you get into the consideration set. You don't win there though. So like by trying to be like, hey, I am, we use this example all the time, like, hey, we're GE, we're better than Siemens. 
are you? Like, is that something you're going to take to a CFO, right? So it's when we studied it and we shared it back with customers and we showed them the results, they said, I would have never told you this. If you had asked me this question, I would have never said this. But now that I look at it, you're right, right? Because I think about all the people I buy from, it's the sellers who come in and they're teaching me and they're not showing up and throwing up about their products. So that was piece one, was just studying customer loyalty. Yeah. I think, so let's build on that, right? Because... Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was the best place to start talking about challenge, of course, right? And, you know, you think about any anything that you buy in life, you know, it could be a car, it could be a house, whatever it may be, you know, it's it's the experience that, that wins the day, always, right? I mean, I think especially that those things that you repeat constantly again and again, it's you get into that force of habit. Um, so totally, totally get that. And obviously at this point, there's some of that uncertainty Again, you know, and you've been at this company for, for, for such a long time, you've probably seen those peaks and peaks and troughs. Um, are you seeing some similarities, I guess, now to, to then? Oh, my gosh, yeah. So, like, the second part of the study then became, okay, you can't just go put that data in front of sellers and be like, customers want to be taught because, like, what do we teach them? And so then that's when we got into the challenger analysis, which is what is it that these people who were outperforming their peers are doing differently? Because they figured something out. And this is something I want to call out because a lot of people will be like, oh, I've been doing Challenger is nothing new, right? And it's like, we know that. We didn't invent Challenger. We just studied sales performers. And there were some really awesome sales performers that figured out how do I sell to a customer in a highly uncertain, like highly risk averse environment. And so essentially what came out of that were these five different mindsets, right? So you might be a relationship builder, which is like, I believe the customer buys for me because they like me, the person. You've got your hard worker who thinks like customers buy for me because I can hold up a list of all the things like, what have I done for you lately? You got the problem solver who's highly reactive. They love to be the hero. They come in and save the day. You got the lone wolf. We have no idea what they're doing as long as they're doing well, we leave them be. And then you got your challengers and your challengers are really kind of your debaters of the world. And despite what the name suggests, these are not always, actually, they're very rarely the really in-your-face aggressive people. And that's a misconception about Challenger a lot. What they are are people that are just massively intellectually curious, right? So they'll look at a customer's business and they'll look and say, like, where does one plus one not equal two? And they're unafraid to teach that back to customers. So to get very long answer to to your question, when you are in environments like this where Like, you know, I'm not anyone to say if we're going to go into a recession or not, but there's a threat of it. There's uncertainty about it. There's fear about it. We as sellers have to appreciate that buying anything is the last thing that most organizations want to do right now. And so we do not win that battle by going in and talking about why we have the best solution and why we're the best like supplier out of anyone that they're considering. Where we do win it is going back to what we learned from customers, which is, like this level of uncertainty, this level of fear, I hate to say it's an opportunity because that sounds so icky, yeah. but it is an opportunity for sellers to help leaders make sense of what's going on. Like yeah. in your space, right? Like you can help leaders make sense of this talent problem better than any single HR leader could figure out on their own, right? It's just, it, it's the reality and it's no knock against HR leaders, but the reality is when times get tight, all of these leaders are now asked to do more with less. And so the amount of time that they have to sit there in a, you know, a room and just do like really, really good strategic thinking is far less than they ideally would like. And so yeah. if a seller comes in and is able to 
share insight about that, right? Like that's what, like, that's what customers want. They want to spend the time on that stuff. They don't want to spend time learning about your latest feature and product and benefit. Look, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head a little bit there as well. I mean, I think about, again, obviously I'm always going to probably turn this back into the recruitment yeah. space a, a little bit, but we deal a lot, our buyers are in a couple of different personas, right? We've got the human resources and talent acquisition space, we've got the executive space, and then you've got, I guess, all the heads of departments, hiring managers that have those problems, right? They're trying to do more with less because they don't have the person that, that they need. And there's a, there's a lot about sales in, in general that is the band-aid, right? Okay, that I can buy that and I'll fix the problem or I can, you know, this role is an issue, I'll, I'll fill it. And, and, and typically it's, there's deeper underlying issues always. And, you know, it's entry point into companies sometimes is doing that band-aid, filling that role, et cetera. But, but for me, it is that real relationship, long-term, you know, mindset that, that, that wins the day, I think. I think the tough part for a lot of sales is getting their foot in the door, right? That's one problem. Yeah, but and you think about it, right? Like what, to your point, I forget what the stat is. It's something like only 3% of the market is actively shopping for a solution. But we typically in sales, and I was guilty of this too, we talk to all 100% like they're shopping for a solution, right? So we're like, we're the best provider of this or our solution does this. And nobody like 97% of people just don't care because they don't believe they have a problem that necessitates a solution. And so when I learned Challenger, it completely rocked my world because I was a relationship builder and it worked really well for a really long time until it weight hit and it no longer was effective. And so I felt like, hey, I have to try this. And what the biggest thing I think I learned from it is if you go out every day as a salesperson, as a recruiter, as whatever you are, because sales is present in are near every role that exists. Yeah. But if you go out there and you are trying to change someone's mind by talking about what you can do for them and what you sell, you are losing the battle, right? Like what we need to think about of, as sellers is the fact that I don't care if it's McKinsey, Forrester, Challenger, all these studies are showing that customers are far more informed. Customers want to take more ownership of their buying process. So we can't keep fighting that. We've got to lean into it. And we've got to view our roles as like, I've got to share insight on the problem such that they then look at me and say, well, we want her opinion at the next step and the next step and the next step. And I don't earn that by just going in and talking about the solution that I sell. Uh, yeah. Listen, couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think for me, I've always been a glass half full person. I've always been hopefully a relationship builder, but you need to kind of earn, earn that right, I suppose. Right. And like I said, it's, for a lot of people, it's getting their foot in the door is the tough part. Once they're in there, it's a lot, a lot easier. And there's some challenger methodologies that help you get the foot in the door. And there's others once, once you're actually at the table. I think for me, I've always felt, you know, the people that start the conversation with, hey, how's the weather? And the, the very generic stuff, you know, the, there's a million of those out there. And, and it's very tough to train somebody to authentically be, you know, engaging you know, and talk about things that are, are relevant. But to your point, people want to, people want insight, you know, people want to pass stuff off as, you know, I have this. I think your job a lot of the time is, you know, to share the, the data, the knowledge, the intelligence with our, our buyers that if they get the one internally, we get the pat in the back, in the background, right? Because we will get more business from them, but they're the ones that look good in the eye of, you know, their, their directors, their executives. And, and almost you make them the hero makes you the hero. And that's kind of a what 
we've always been about. So I think that's why that challenger makes it has always been something that we've definitely tried to, to kind of portray in our business. And, and you know, we, we come here. Let, me, let me say something really quick on that, because I think you like I want to make sure listeners really pay attention to what you just said, because that is such a critical, critical aspect of this. When you really put yourselves in the customer's shoes, like no executive gets excited to go tell their boss and their colleagues, like, hey, I have something we want to spend money on. Like, in fact, right now, that's like the last thing you want to no. talk about, right? What they do get activated, what they do get excited about is sharing a great idea. Like we as humans, we don't act differently as buyers than we do as humans. So if I sit here, Nikki, and you tell me a really badass idea, I am super motivated to go share that with others. And that's what we want, right? Like we want our buyer, we want our stakeholder to then circulate that idea. And when they say, where did that come from? Oh, well, Nikki said it to me the other day. Who's Nikki, right? And how do we get him in more? Because he seems to have a pulse on what we're doing. So I think what you said is so important. And we really need to be mindful of that, especially in economies like this, where people are just going to be highly sensitive to shopping around solutions with their peers. A hundred percent. I mean, I think for us, that insights piece, the data piece, our methodology is recruitment process intelligence. And it's the intelligence piece, the recruitment bits they're given. If we don't fill roles, people don't use us for very long, right? So thankfully we fill a lot of roles. And having the process and the framework, all that's super, super important. That's your product, that whatever it is. Yeah. But the data part for me is, is the part that's really changed in the recruitment space the last two years. People you know, want to be really sure they're using the right partner. So they're doing their, you know, their, their pre-checking. People, you know, want to make sure they're getting a bang for their buck. They want to make sure that the talent pool is there. They want to be aligned. You know, they want to understand the salary, how's it changed, et cetera. So the more you can give them, the more you can give them for free. On top of that, the better. But when you do that and you really differentiate, you're not just filling the role, but you're giving them the value add. That's what gets you that long-term customer. That's what gets you the referral. And it's very difficult to, to, to replicate that. I think you mentioned something earlier, right? Because there are a lot of salespeople that can give a decent experience, that can relationship build, that can rhyme off all of the pros of their product. But if, if, if the product doesn't work, it's still hard. I mean, I think the days of just being that good salesperson that can say anything, those days are definitely changing. I think, you know, over the last five years, there's been a lot of tech sales, right? There's been all these tools that have just came out that, oh my God, that's the next best thing. That's the next best thing. And anybody that can just put them into a, a cadence and rhyme off all the, 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 the pros of the, the, the product can make the sale, that's changing. You know, I think the, we're into that point just now where you, you genuinely do need a methodology, a framework, you need to have a really good product as well, you know, and I think the next three or four years are going to be tough for salespeople. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? I know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> you know, Wish I, I, just gen I genuinely believe there's been a lot, and I hate to say this, it's going to go out to a lot of salespeople, right? But a lot of average salespeople or fairly good salespeople have made a lot of money, and it's going to be hard to continue to do that over these next few years if you're not on top of your game. 100%. I mean, I think one of the terms that gets used incorrectly a lot of times is the word sales. Like if I am picking up the phone and getting inbounds out of, you know, the wazoo, I'm an order taker, right? I'm not selling. I'm, I'm facilitating the purchase, 
but I'm not truly selling. And I think what was eye-opening for me in 08, 09 is I wasn't like, I was a good order taker. It wasn't a great salesperson. And it took demand drying up as much as it did for me to realize that and realize that I really need to take a different approach to selling. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to wait out and, at a recession. Like that's, <laughs> that's really not going to fly. <laughs> and so I think like, What's wild is we go through these periods, like you went through the recession, you went through COVID and we as salespeople, I think just have short memories sometimes, right? Like when things start to get good again, it's like we fall back into our old patterns and we yeah. order take, we product push. And I think one of the, the, you said you're a half glass full person, right? I am too. Like one of the blessings of an environment like this is there is no better teacher for how to truly sell. Because when you are going out and you're trying to get people to spend money in environments where it is literally the last thing they want to do, it really forces us to look within and explore how am I, how am I doing that? Yeah. And I think, you know, to use an example of your space, right? I'm not an expert in recruiting. I've been the recipient of a lot of recruitment messages. And I will tell you, there has never been a recruitment company that's like, we have a bad product. We have a bad service. We have a completely unfair price. Our, our brand sucks. Like they, nobody talks like that. But every, the, not every, by yeah, and large, many, <laughs> it's a good pattern interrupt, but many recruitment like messages I get start with why are they, they are the best option, right? So it's like, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where sometimes I had, I was talking to someone yesterday um, who manages a sales team and he said, sometimes what I do is I invite members of my sales team to sit on calls so they can hear how ineffective it is to talk about us and to have the mindset that my role as a salesperson is to convince someone that we are the best. And I thought that was a really great idea because in our minds, it sounds good, right? Like my job as a salesperson, I'm trying to sell something. I want them to buy from us. I therefore have to tell them how great we are, but it's really not about that, right? And that's what that customer data taught us. It is don't tell them how great you are, expose risk, expose cost, expose you know, missed opportunity for profit in the customer's business because customers care about themselves. They don't care about you until they, they, they have a reason to care about you. So it just changes the whole tone and, and subject matter of the message. See, see, for me, I've got a, obviously a sports background, which gives me, I guess, that I've had tons of highs and lows in my career. You win, you lose. And, yeah. and I've spoken about this a couple of times. So for me, I don't get low if somebody says, I've chose another recruitment company for this one, you know, maybe bummed for two seconds, but you know, there are tens of thousands of recruitment companies out there. I'm not naive enough to think that we are the best choice for everyone, yeah. but we're in a space where, you know, obviously this super competitive space. If somebody just phones up and they order take and you get that, there's a sense of great, you know, okay, deal done, etc. but there is nothing better than spotting an issue for a client, you know, talking through that with them, what is the, you know, it's not just that, that person, you know, needs this role filled. It's, you know what, I'm working four hours extra a day. I'm covering this and that. all the, the other pain points that come with that, the, the actual impacts, and then you solve that for them, right? Because I think that's why I'm in recruitment. For me, I, what I like about recruitment, why every Sunday night I'm not crying because I need to go to work. <laughs> I'm in this because I genuinely have an opportunity every day to speak to really important people about the issues that they are having and how our solution can hopefully help with that, which one we don't know yet, depending on the problem. And when you actually fill the role, you know, the person gets a new job and typically more money and more responsibility. 
the hiring manager is like, thank God, I don't need to work those extra hours anymore. My partner's not going to kill me anymore. And, you know, the, you see the impact that they have in an organisation. The only person that you're really pissing off in that process is the person that you've just stole the candidate from. And that's an opportunity to go fill another role, right? So for me, there's just there's, there's that sense of accomplishment, much bigger accomplishment when it starts with a problem or it starts yeah. with, a, with a challenge. And for sure, right, I think as much as sellers need to up their game right now, buyers are more guarded now than ever, I would say. They're, they are receiving automated sales messages and phone calls every day. I mean, I know that because I'm receiving them every day for products that we don't, whatever, never need. <laughs> and, you know, I, I actually like to stay in people's cadences for a while and just see what they're going to say next and can I steal any of that for the team or whatever. But, but, but let's talk about that. You know, buyers are really guarded at the moment. There's a lot of choice out there. There's a lot of no decisions. So get back to right to that, that starting point. How do you, you know, how do you stand out from the crowd? How do you, you know, get that loyalty or get that chance to really get to those pain points? How do you, how would you, you know, if you're speaking to a sales leader right now, a new sales leader or, you know, a salesperson that's going through that rut or worried about the economy, how do you, how do you get that sense of loyalty with the customer? Where do you, how do you get that opportunity? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is it requires the organization asking themselves a really hard question. So it's an uncomfortable question, which is why should customers buy from us versus anybody else? And I will tell you every single time I have asked that question to a company and you could do it like in a survey monkey where people can't see what other people are responding, you get exactly what you'd expect. We have better service. We have a better product. We are like things that are very, very generic and commoditized. And quite frankly, it's not like there are other competitors that are not saying the same thing. So part of it is just having that moment where we realize even if we do have better service, it doesn't mean anything. And I hate saying it because I know people well, take a lot of pride in it, but it doesn't mean anything. It is your opinion about your level of service. And that is biased and customers see that. And to your point that they're guarded. Yeah. So first of all, we have to recognize that like some of the things that we maybe hold true to believe make us different are in fact not that different. Second thing is then we have to be a student of the customer, right? So if you are selling to uh, you know, a common set of stakeholders, like if you're selling to a head of HR, if you're selling like I do to a head of sales, we really have to look like forget about what we sell. And we have to look at the role of sales and we have to understand what are the things that they actually do care about, right? So like training, you might think like sales leaders totally care about it. Candidly, more often than not, they don't. Like they care about forecasting. They care about like CRM. They care about, um, you know, retention of their top talent. Like training to a lot of sales leaders is like, yeah, if we've got budget for it, we'll do it. But I will say even myself, when I first moved into this role or my previous role here, I thought every sales leader would care about it. So I went in with that assumption to every conversation, like we're going to make the best training experience you've ever had. And they're like, cool, don't really care. This thing's more important. You're almost looking at that saying, God, that's time off the phone or that's time. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's like, that's exactly the stuff we're talking about. You've got to look at the the sphere of things they care about. We talk about um, Xerox is one example we talked about in the book that did this really well, where they were selling color printers to school superintendents. And school superintendents are like, I could not care less about color printers. Like, you, I'm cared about like safety in my schools, my teachers showing up, student test scores, and so it requires us as as sellers and as as broader commercial organizations 
to map out that circle of, of what do they really care about and then start drawing little lines outside of it to say, now, how does this stakeholder assume they make this thing better? So like I'll play off the Xerox example. In Xerox, um, student performance on test scores matters a lot to schools. That's how they get their funding. Yep. That at face value has nothing to do with color printing. But by looking at it that way, what Xerox was able to do is say, okay, so how do you affect student test scores? Well, it, that is affected by student engagement in the classroom. Okay, now how does student engagement in the classroom go up or down? Well, if you've got kids that go home to Xboxes and iPads and high, you know, high res TVs, yes. and then they come in the classroom and they're looking at black and white copy, they check out. Right. So now all of a sudden Xerox has identified a way to make value of color printing high because they first started with what the customer cared about and what they were trying to achieve instead of starting with the printer first. And so that process is something that we teach here at Challenger. But that is the single best thing I think any seller can do is just forget what you are trying to sell. Start with what your customer is trying to solve. And then look for those assumptions, those belief systems that are actually flawed. So like, and then I'll shut up, like in the Xerox example, superintendents were like, we got to buy iPads. And so Xerox was able to come in and say, you actually don't need to buy a hundred iPads. You can buy one color printer. So now Xerox is comparing the cost of one color printer to the cost of a hundred iPads instead of comparing the cost of one color printer to nothing. Right. And that's what we're talking Like, We've got to change what customers are evaluating that's us amazing. on. Yeah. And I just love that example. I think it's a really great job of, of doing it in action. I'm definitely stealing that one. <laughs> it's so true, though. I mean, you just think of the way even Apple and iPads changed the game. Right. And they, they, they almost put problems out there that didn't exist, you know, in the, in the eyes of the customers. So you portray it as well half the time that yes. it gets it done. Um, I mean, let's let's look at yourself. Right. I mean, you've been there for 18 years. That's extremely rare, really, really rare. Um, I think nowadays you're looking at people being in row on average, especially in sales, 18 months, two years, they move. People are so impatient. They want the next, you know, they want the next job before they're even good at the one that they've got, etc. And so, you know, what, what's kept you there? What, what yeah. drives you every day because you're still smiling here 18 years later? Yeah, there's two things. So one is because my job for the last 18 years has been working with sales organizations and marketing, but just commercial organizations at large, I recognize that the grass is not greener, right? Like it is, it is something that I get the, the benefit of seeing because of my exposure. So I know like, I don't fall into that trap of like, I'm leaving here and I'm going over here because here is better. Like, it, it, I, I think that is something where, where sellers can get misled and I've been lucky to have exposure that's prevented that. So that's one. Um, the second thing is, if you look at my career, it, I didn't actually even realize this. Someone pointed it out to me on another podcast. Roughly about every two years, my job changed in some way. Yeah. So it was like, first I started as an account manager, just focused on renewals. And then I switched to like renewals and upsell. And then I switched to managing some account managers. And then I moved to sales. And so long way of saying, I, I think within sales, we have means to find new ways to expand our skill set, do things differently. Yeah. But no one's going to come to you and, and present a like career path, like not no one, but very few companies are going to look at it the way we would want them to look it at. And so in my opinion, that is for us to take ownership over. Like sales is not just one thing. Sales has many different flavors. And so for me, just continually exploring every year at the end, you know, it's a 
the normal cycle. When you get to January and you're like, oh, I got to do this all over again. I look back and I say, what were the things, the meetings, the projects I worked on that were really exciting? What were the ones I dreaded? And then what I try to do is how do I pick a different flavor of sales that's more of the stuff that I enjoy, less of the stuff that I dread? And that's exactly what got me into the job that I'm in today because I looked at selling and said, all right, I feel like I've done every different kind of flavor of selling here. What can I do that's still sales, but has a different sort of spin and, and allows me to do more of the stuff that I enjoy? Um, so I think that's been really important. And then the last thing is just intellectual stimulation. Like one of the beauties of this job is we are constantly studying seller and customer behavior. And I never get bored because there's always something new. Like you'll yeah. always hear me say, don't ever call me an expert because you can't be an expert in sales. It just changes too much. And I think that's kept me for a long time as well. See, I think that's I think that's key. I mean, you and I both have the benefit of having roles where we get to speak to really important people all the time. Yeah. And, you know, you can learn and borrow and steal loads of good things that you hear every day, right? To sound even more knowledgeable ourselves. And, you know, I think it's, it's sharing that knowledge is, is, is key, right? I mean, I, I don't want to call you the all-rounder in sales, but because you've had that renewals part, you know, you're not, it's a totally different thing, right? You're evaluating how somebody else has sold something and how the company's applied it. And then you get to then, sometimes pick up the pieces or be the person that goes, that's been great. Let's renew you and upskill you and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. But I think it's really important to have, to have that, you know, that, that well-rounded experience. If you're going to stay in a company and you said something else, that's quite important. Every couple of years, you were challenged again yourself. And whether it was the company that done that, you wanted that yourself, the two of them just matched very well. I, you know, I was told by a sales leader about, four or five months ago, it was just before I got promoted to, to my current role. You've been there way too long. What do you mean? He's like, I mean, what's that, four or five years? I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, get out of there. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, <laughs> go cash in, like go get your next role. You don't want to come steal. And I was like, look, I learn something new every week, every day. Like, you know, the day I stop getting challenged in my own roles, the day I'll go look for, for something else. But, and he couldn't believe that that was my answer. You know, it was almost like you could go make more money somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, but money's not everything. Right. You know, and, and, and I think that's the, let, let me flip this a little bit, right? Because there's, like we said, right now, the sales role is super challenging. There's a lot of other people doing the same thing. You know, as soon as, as soon as somebody gets something, there's 20 competitors now, right? Everybody has their yeah. own spin to it. Buyers are super guarded, you know, and, and as much as I think really good decision makers and leaders should be constantly keeping their eyes and ears to the ground for what could be better and how could we do it. That should be always a big, big part of the role. A lot of them stick to the, the tried and tested, right? But there's a lot of, um, and I'm not wanting to call it younger people, but maybe less experienced people now, you know, social such a big, big thing. So that's way different to Challenger of 18 years ago today, right? You've got LinkedIn, you've got millions of people there. You've got Pavilion Network, you've got Rev Genius, you've got all of these different platforms where people have a good idea. Not all of them are seasoned salespeople. Some of them have two or three years into their career, but you know, I'm going to become a podcast host or I'm going to do this. And I'm going to... So there's a lot of noise out there and a lot of good and bad advice. You know, is there any other networks or platforms that you've found that, that have helped you or do you try and just, you know, stay in, stay in zone and stay in lane a little bit and keep really focused? What, what are some of the other things that motivate you in your in your life? 
Yeah. So I think for me, um, LinkedIn now versus how I use LinkedIn uh, even two years ago has changed so significantly. So two years ago, I was like, all right, this is how I find people to talk to and prospect. And I was never job hunting, so I didn't use it for that purpose, but a lot of people did. Now, I like I will own like I am not someone who when I have free time will sit there and read a book. Like I should read more books. I absolutely should. But oh, my bucket I, list every year never <laughs> Apart from the challenger, of course. Apart from the challenger. Yeah, no, I didn't even, I mean, I'll be honest, like, I didn't even read the challenger book because I was in the business while we were creating it. So people are like, yeah, that page. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't read it. But, (laughs) but like, you know, I, like, we have four kids, three dogs. Like, I choose to spend my time with my family when I have free time. So I don't read a ton of books. But I am obsessed with learning bite sized stuff. So what I value a lot in LinkedIn is I follow people like Josh Braun or Brendan Flaherty or, um, gosh, there's so many of them. There's like so many people I learn from, but what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm constantly learning, but in a way that's very digestible to me. So I view, like I said before, I don't think you can ever become an expert in sales. I think you can learn not to make the same mistake twice, but for me, I am, I'm intentionally using that in my day so that I can pick up new ideas, new ways of doing things. And there is, I, I promise you this, there has not been a single day in the last, in 2022, where I have not looked at LinkedIn and learned something. Yeah. And that to me is incredibly important because the moment I get stale, the moment I'm just doing what I've always done, those are the moments in my career where I've been like, Ooh, I got to get out of this. So whatever your mode for learning is, I think like, you know, learning feeds the mind and having a happy mind and having like a busy mind is a good thing in, in sales. Yeah. Um, so that's been personally just important to me. Very similar. You know, at the start of every year, I say to myself, I'm going to read a couple of books. My, my CEO reads a lot. He's sent me a few that I've definitely read. And, you know, for me, I really link simply LinkedIn can consume your day, right? It absolutely can. And if salespeople or recruiters are sitting on LinkedIn all day, they're probably losing money, right? But it's, it's easy to get drawn in. I think at the start of COVID, I signed up for a different webinar every day and then realized Okay, I might watch these, I might learn a sentence or two, but I'm not applying them. So yeah. I really started to cut them back and say to myself, okay, this one with Josh Braun looks really good. I'm gonna that's gonna be the one this month. And, you know, for example, Pavilion and Rev Genius Pavilion's the, the one kind of a network that I've really enjoyed, you know, because again, there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a lot of Slack channels and you can get really lost in those types of things. But I think you know, picking maybe even giving people a tip here, you know, but given even picking one, finding something, applying it, seeing how it's making a difference to what you're doing. Is it helping after a couple of months? Is it not? That's always worked for me very, very similar to yourself. Yes. And Josh Brown has this saying he uses a lot. You've probably seen it, which is I do over IQ, meaning you can consume, consume, consume. If you never apply any of it, it's kind of pointless to do all that learning. So I love that mentality. It's like, Go deep on one new thing, try it, master it, and then take on something else because we can paralyze ourselves with learning sometimes. Um, and I think that's kind of detrimental. Okay, so I want you to now, let, let, let's flip this again to um, maybe, maybe looking at the sales and recruitment side again, right? Because yeah. I, I've always felt that my, my CEO, Gavin, and I kind of a chat about it and laugh at it sometimes, like hire like a BDR, right? I mean, I think for us in the sales side, You've got your tools, you've got your automation, you've got your pipelines, you've got your clients, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, loads of tried and tested methods. 
But if I think about recruitment of two or three years ago, you could send a couple of LinkedIn messages, you would get some curiosity, boom, a couple of conversations, there's your shortlist, right? I think now loads of people have changed roles, particularly in sales. Loads of people have been counter-offered and stayed. Some like yourself are just not leaving. And the pot in the middle is really, really small. And some of the real traits of discipline, persistence, you know, matching really well, all of these things that are what good salespeople do is exactly what is winning the recruitment war, you know, and it's even harder for the recruiter, right? Because not only are they trying to sell to the, the, the candidate, this is the perfect role for you over here, they're trying to sell to the hiring manager that that's the perfect candidate for that role as well. And every candidate's going to be different. So, you know, the, the, the role of a, a recruiter is absolutely a salesman. There's no there's no doubt about it. And if all they do is say, here are all the perks of this job, you know, they're not they're, they're not going to fill that role either, right? It's really getting to what are the motivators of that candidate. So I see loads of similarities in that sales and recruitment side. What tips could you give, I guess, the recruiter speaking to the candidate? Yeah. Um, I would, first of all, I would 100% agree with you. I think recruitment is probably the hardest type of sale because it is a human life. Like when I change, if I were to change. Too many humans uh, involved. I think that's the right? <laughs> Like if I were to change a job, I'd have to talk to my family. I'd have to be like, man, is this the right thing? Is this the right time? Like it is a really, really difficult job. So my advice would be there is just like if you're selling, you know, a B2B solution, there is a story behind every hiring manager and every candidate. And now some people are going to have more information out there for us to learn from than others, granted. But like if someone was going to try to recruit me to go to a different organization, if they just said, hey, this like really sexy unicorn and there's like, you know, 500,000 OTE, none of that stuff's going to get me, right? Because it's not what's important to me. But if they looked at my story on LinkedIn and said, okay, this is someone who every two years is moving around. And this is someone who seems to be like super passionate about like a people related job, right? Like you can tell in how she describes herself in the about me, like she cares a lot about coaching, developing people. Like what is the story that Jen doesn't realize about herself that she's not telling herself that I could introduce to her, right? So that might come out in the sense of like, Jen, I've been studying your, 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 your career path. Um, it looks like every two years you've sort of made a shift. Um, and from what I can tell, it seems like a lot of what drives you is, you know, your, your, your willingness to desire to help salespeople out of curiosity. Like, have you ever explored, uh, you know, moving into a role that looks like this and, and making it like a conversation that we would have at a cocktail party, right? No one would ever walk up to me at a cocktail party and be like, I'm the best runner here. And I run like a three minute mile. Like that's weird, but we do it in our outreach all the time. So I think my advice would be long way of saying, my advice would be understand the story, have, have some insight, have some perspective or point of view, even if you're wrong, just by virtue of doing that work, what it shows me is I'm not on some large mailing list. Like you are actually reaching, trying to reach me. And that in and of itself, I think will lead to more, at least acknowledgements of, I got your message, like maybe you're off or maybe now's not the right time for this, this, and this. But I think in a world where like ghosting has just become so common, yeah. even just getting that is a win. So that would be my Absolutely. advice. I love, I love the story piece, you know, and it is things like family and fit and future and the fortune, right? I mean, that is exactly the thing, right? If we can say to our hiring manager, 
or our buyer, here is the story of this person. Their first conversation with that person is going to go way better. Yes. That 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 candidate's going to go. This person's took the time to get to know me. They maybe have read two sentences, but it looks like they've done a, a ton of research, right? And then again, that is less likely of ghosting, dropout, going into another interview process. I, I, I love that. I'm definitely stealing the story behind both. <laughs> I think you know, from the sales point of view, everybody's looking for that nugget of sentence or that you know that really persuasive thing to say to get somebody to say yes i'll have a conversation when you get that conversation we're all trying to get understand that story most people because we talk about the differences in linkedin most people tell you their life story on linkedin nowadays right so you're getting all these little nuggets of personalization that, that you can use you know for example i've got a picture on my, my linkedin that some people are like why the hell have you still got that picture Half the time it's a conversation starter, you're different, you stand out as whatever. And it's a passion of mine, right? So people don't like it, couldn't care less, you know? But it's one of the best um, outreaches I ever got was from a company, ReachDesk. You know, it was an SDR at ReachDesk and she totally tied in this email to, you know, how can I help you put the ball in the back of the net or something like that? And I thought, that's so clever. Yeah. And, and, and whether you need the product or not, it was almost like, that person must have fun in their day doing that versus the person that just task, 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 task. And we've turned into these automation junkies, I think, over the past five years. Um, no, I love that. I love the story part. And how do, if, if sellers or recruiters take anything away from this, is how do you find that buyer's story? And, so and that, what I want to say to what you just said, I think is another like brilliant point we have to remember in our messaging, which is how we show up online in our conversations like if we're boring and it's stats and it's about us a buyer looks at that and says this is how the conversation with them offline is going to sound like when i'm talking to them and nobody wants to spend time on a boring conversation so i love the example from reach test that you gave because you're like all right worst case scenario like i don't need what they have to offer but i know it's going to be an enjoyable conversation because this person is showing up as a human so i love that call out nikki i think that's such a good one for us to remember I mean, I'm all for testing, right? And I'm all for my team enjoying what they do, you know, as, as a sales organization. And there's a huge element that's got to be discipline and determination and persistence. And sometimes you're playing that numbers game, right? Until you get really good at, at what you do or you've got that experience or that network or that pipeline, you know, but see if it makes your day better sending a couple of gifts out that make people laugh or whatever, that's genuine, right? I mean, I think people try and, no disrespect, right? But you've got your Will Aldrids and, and everybody's saying, here's the perfect email. Not everybody can send that exact same email to everyone. The place, you know, and I'm all for everybody making sure what they're sending is, is right and the best it can possibly be. But genuine and authentic wins the day for me every time. Yeah. So, and I think like the trifecta of people to listen to, because I, I agree with you, I don't ever go with just one person's point of view, but I think Will, because I love Will's frameworks and he's just got so much data. I love that. Oh, yeah. You pair that with Sam McKenna, whose whole approach is like, show me, you know me, which kind of is like the reach desk example. And yeah. then you pair that with Will Aitken from um, Vidyard Sales Feed. And he is like someone who just leads with his personality, leads with his humor. I think you blend those together and you get a total powerhouse combination to think about how you, you show up in outreach. So those are three people I really admire and learn from. Perfect. And, and, and likewise, likewise. Yeah. All right. So I'm trying to think of the last nugget of wisdom that you can you can leave with us. 
uh, or leaders with rather. I mean, if, if I try and summarize some of the things that have been really, really good for me here is, you know, for sure, use the social platform to learn. You know, apply what you learn. Don't try and do everything. I think put yourself in the customer's shoes, right? What is it? What is it about you that you think is going to support them? What you know? What's their biggest pain points uh, as well? Because I think some people are that bit prescriptive now. Like, hopefully you have one of these challenges, please, and then maybe maybe chat to us. Get. I mean, from your point of view, if you were going to leave sellers with one point of wisdom for the remainder of 2022, what, what would it be? Yeah, I would say it is um, in your message and in your outreach, really truly be diligent about getting rid of the eyes, we's, us, our, that language, because I think that is the, the single easiest thing to do to start changing the content of your message is just to count that. That's honestly one of the first things I do with sellers. It's just like, can you count for me how many of these you have in here? And it's like, oh, there's 10. And I'm like, how many you and they? And it's like, there's two. So that's that's the first thing. And then I would say what I said before, which is be a student of your customer and don't look at it as like a one person job. Every organization that I work with that says we're going to take a similar approach to figuring out what we think customers don't know about themselves gets a better answer by doing it in aggregate. So pull in a buddy, you know, do it formally as a team if you can, but don't think that it's a battle you got to solve for yourself. Like when you were sharing, Nikki, before we hopped on that you guys do these meetings with your clients and it's best practice sharing and discussing problems. It's like, organizations should really take that and share that wisdom back because that's ultimately what allows us to show up and, and speak with credibility and, and with um, with a passion. So that would be my last nugget. Okay, I'm going to steal one more from you in the last 10 seconds here. What's your favorite subject like to a cold prospect? Ah, uh, easy. My favorite tried and true, it's the CEO's name comments. So like for us, it would be Andy Harris's comments. And the reason I love it, but you have to use it right, is when I get an email like that, I would be like, oh, what, did, sure. what did I do? Like, what did Andy say about me? But you have to be diligent about tying it to your CEO said this about what you're trying to achieve. Out of curiosity, have you ever tried this to, to, to solve for it? So you have to make it relevant. You can't just use it as a, an icky trick because people will hate that. But I think it's a great opener. I've seen great open rates with it. Brilliant, brilliant. Listen, I think we could talk for hours and I'm sure we'll speak soon. But thank you so much for being a, an awesome guest. You know, we probably started this with an agenda and went all over. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Jen. Likewise. Bye.